Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Dr. Jeffrey Woodman joins the S2 Cognition Podcast today. He is currently a professor at Vanderbilt University in psychology and neuroscience. He was recently named to the E. Bronson Ingram Chair of Neuroscience and is the director of Vanderbilt Vision Research Center T32 grant from the National Eye Institute. Dr. Woodman has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers and two textbooks on vision and visual cognition. He's also considered a leading expert in attention and visual perception. Today, we are diving in to search efficiency and how it relates to sports. That interview with Dr. Jeffrey Woodman is next here on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Dr. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you joining the S2 Cognition Podcast to talk about search efficiency and defining what search efficiency is. Do you do you mind uh, putting that in layman's terms for the uh, average listener? Sure, I'd be happy to. So search efficiency sounds very scientific, but it's actually just the slope of a line uh, that we're calculating. To my knowledge, the first scientists to measure the slope of this line uh, did it in a paper in 1956, which was the first paper to use the term visual search. So what they did was to have people look for a certain letter on, uh, on a screen, and then they put a varying number of letters on the screen. <laughs> so you could have two up there and one of them's the letter you're looking for, or you could have 20 up there and one of them's the letter you're looking for. And what they noticed was that as they put more letters, it took more time for you to respond. And they were measuring reaction time in milliseconds, uh, one thousandth of a second. And as they added another letter to the screen, it took on average a person about 50 more milliseconds to respond with each additional letter that they added to the screen. And now that's on average. So across all people, you know, you add another letter to a screen and it takes them another 50 seconds, 50 milliseconds, excuse me, to tell you whether the letter you're looking for is there. Now, there's differences. There's individual differences in how fast people can basically absorb the cost of the additional letters on the screen. Some people are really efficient and can process them very fast. And each letter has very little cost, whereas some people are kind of slow <laughs> and each letter takes like a tenth of a second, like a hundred milliseconds in order to process it. Can you dive into the cost? When you say cost, what do you mean by cost? Right. So the idea is, is that there's really in these tasks, typically there's only one target that you're really looking for at any one moment in time. So we tell you to look for a T or sometimes these tasks will have you look for like the number one, and then you're supposed to look for the number two and then three and then four. And so you have that kind of a sequence of targets. But what this means is that everything else on the screen is just what's known as a distractor. And that's the term people use in the scientific literature. A distractor is an object you are not looking for. And, you know, in sports, this is most of the objects, <laughs> you know, everyone screaming in the stands is a distractor. The other players sometimes are distractors, right? You do not want to throw the ball to them. You want to throw it to your teammates. And so the, the cost is an additional distractor tends to slow people a little bit. But the really interesting thing about this paper from 1956 is they also showed that it wasn't just any letter that mattered. 
that if people knew they were looking for a red letter T, for example, it was only the red letters that had this cost. They Only the red letters would slow you down an additional period of time so, with the idea being you have to check that distractor to see if it's the target or not. So that's why each additional item has a little bit of a cost because your brain has to go, wait, is that a T? Nope, not a T. And then it can go on and, and search the other ones. So it's interesting, it, you know, the, even those data from that, that paper from MIT from the mid fifties uh, suggests that it's really the, it's the objects that look like your target that are really gonna slow you down, right? So if you're looking to, to pass the ball to one of your teammates, it's the number of your teammates in the area you wanna pass the ball to that are gonna be kind of viable distractors. It's interesting to think about how these findings from the experiment kind of play themselves out on the on the field or on the court. So Jeff, given that there it seems like there might be different hierarchical levels of distractor, right? So what I'm hearing from you is that the same color objects provide more of a distraction than different color of objects. It seems like a little bit of filtering of attention sort of that uh, you know sort of overlays this. What is the what is the interplay? I know a lot of folks listening you know, are aware of what attention is, but how does like attention interact with this whole process? That's a great question, Brandon. There's a little bit of disagreement, but I'll try to paint it more like the general agreement is, is that when you have knowledge about what you're looking for, that you do some sort of what's known as top-down filtering. So I tell you the, the object that you're gonna look for is red. And that simply by you knowing this, what you've done is to juice up the responses of the red neurons in your brain. So that by you knowing what red generally looks like in your visual system, your prefrontal cortex can kind of reach back and juice up those neurons that, that code for red. And that means that when a red item appears in their visual field, you're, it's more likely to you know, capture attention, it's more likely to get into memory so it looks like when you have something that kind of gets through this attentional filter that it has certain processing advantages you tend to be aware of those objects you remember them later you can interact with them the flip side of that is that you can be uh, inattentionally blind that is for an object that you really do not attend to at all and that you filter out uh, it looks as though your visual system has no awareness that it saw that item later in time uh, and it doesn't get into memory and you can have car accidents happen and these sort of things when when the filter settings aren't correct now on the field of play you don't people don't get you know horribly mangled but um, it can happen in driving so you've mentioned already two things that sort of it seems like could make this whole visual search process more difficult right sort of sheer number of objects you're filtering through and then potentially color are there any other sort of things that would make it more difficult? So I'm just trying to think of this in the, in the lens of a coach who may have a soccer player or something that has very low search efficiency. How can we make that sort of aspect easier on the field or, or what makes it more difficult for that person on the field? That's a really good question. There's, there are some, there's some somewhat bizarre and interesting findings about what doesn't matter actually, by the way. So People have had. I think that's interesting. Yes, I, I think this is, and it's totally sports relevant. Which is, they've had they've had the the feel the array shift to different locations, 
on the screen. And the idea here is that it mimics what happens when you make eye movements, right? And so what they wanted to do was to say, you know, when you're out in the world performing your sport or doing visual search, you know, in the wild, not in the laboratory, you would make eye movements around. And it's possible that that would really slow you down. So let's try to mimic that in the laboratory by having the the screen kind of jump around a little bit. And what's really interesting there is that does not seem to change the efficiency of the search. It looks like it causes a delay, like a, a Y-intercept effect is what it's known in science. That simply means it delays everybody's response by a little bit, a constant bit. But once you start searching again, it looks like it's just as efficient. So making eye movements around doesn't seem to be a big deal. It doesn't really seem to matter. So in, and in the sports training world, this means you don't need to necessarily tell someone to like stare at one's point in space and never move their eyes. Like there's certain things that don't matter and you, you don't need to worry about people's fixation behavior, which is very nice because we, some people, actually most people don't know when they're making eye movements. You kind of have to be trained to know when you're making eye movements because we make about three of them per second you know, uh, when we're awake <laughs> anyway, and you make millions of these throughout your life. So many people are not actually aware of, uh, can't tell the difference between when they may move their eyes or when they shift attention to a location without moving their eyes. So it takes some training to learn this. I think your question also kind of gets at what makes people better or worse at this thing. So like, what are their features of, of people? You know, people have looked at developmental uh, studies and aging studies. Another interesting finding there is that the search efficiency for any reasonably large sample of uh, healthy young adults versus kids, uh, the slope of those functions are not very different. It looks like it's a lot of y-intercept effect, that visual search efficiency in measured in how much extra time or cost does every distractor add seems to be somewhat stable, maybe across the lifespan, because that same thing happens as you get older. So when you're a kid, it looks like it takes you longer to like start doing the task, which maybe describes a lot of our experience as a kid. <laughs> but then once you start doing it, you know, you can do it more or less like an adult does it. Um, it. It looks like that same thing may happen to older adults. That is, it's really the onset of beginning to compare these representations to the thing you're looking for in memory that takes a while to start or longer to start. But once you get going, the search efficiency is not that different. Now, I do not know anyone who's actually measured this across the lifespan, but you guys have some children and you could start now. <laughs> so, see whether their search efficiency, you know, the slope of that line stays the same across decades. I'm sure Scott's already on that. He's got it. He's got an eye tracker in, in the back room back there with, uh, with the wall. Now, I mean, what it would suggest is that there's, that this is some sort of core cognitive mechanism that's maybe determined by genetics or some other property that's baked into the system. And what happens during development and during cognitive decline doesn't really matter for the speed that this thing operates. That would be pretty surprising, in, in, for me anyway, because a lot of what's changing when, as we get older is our speed of information processing. We're getting slower. 
in visual search tasks, lots of other sort of tasks. It looks like processing speed is what they call it. That takes a big hit as you get older. I realize most of your audience is probably not worried about their aging right now, but you know, I'm getting up there. So it's a, it's a little more relevant yeah. for me uh, now. I am. I am. So, so you're talking just to me. That's cool. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, but we could look at it the other ways. Developmentally, it looks like it has that same trajectory, which is it may be fairly stable as soon as we can measure it. And then you just get better at starting the task, at kind of switching between tasks as you get older. Right. So if, if I guess a question that would be relevant to this crowd is if you measure, let's say you have a 15 year old quarterback and you measure him, that score, that sort of search efficiency is going to stay consistent when he gets in the car, he's in his twenties. We think so. Or the data right now suggests that should be true. <laughs> you know, I, this is the, I'm a scientist, so unfortunately yeah, yeah, no, you're going to get some yeah. answers like that. But yes, we, <laughs> we think if you guys, I mean, this is what's the cool thing is that you guys will actually be able to, to test that. You'll know first, right? So you'll get some kids and you'll measure their search efficiency when they're kids, then get them in college. And then you, that's kind of peak human is college. You it, know, it doesn't change. It does. It, right. It doesn't change that much in all of the data we've seen. Uh, obviously some of the frontal lobe based stuff does. Um, not, not a ton, but most of the visual stuff, especially visual search has been really consistent and pretty rock solid across longitudinal with these kids. And, and also just looking at them cross-sectionally comparing, you know, 13 year olds to 20 year olds. Yeah. What Brandon's suggesting is that this mechanism that allows you to shift attention between objects in an array or filter out the distractors or however you want to describe what the brain is doing to allow you to find that object right? That it doesn't need, it's, it's not related to the development of your general intelligence, right? It may be a separate thing that's really important for your survival, but it's not about like my creativity and problem solving and stuff, right? And the data suggests you're exactly right. If you train a monkey to do one of these tasks, then you can take out its whole frontal lobe and as long as you keep the target the same, the monkey can do it totally normally. That the, the search efficiency, the search slope is exactly the same. Even though that monkey, like we, we assume like doesn't really know what's going on and like is having some trouble like eating and stuff, but yet it can perform visual search. So it is really pretty amazing about how maybe autonomous this mechanism is. Once you start it looking for something, it can do that even when like, you know, the person in control leaves. <laughs> so. Right. Wow. I, I was pretty open to all the things we were going to get into today, but I did not have on my bingo card removing frontal lobe from a monkey and still being able to operate the search efficiency task. That's pretty, that's, I didn't have that. So I appreciate you getting into it. Brandon, I, I wanted to talk about the, you know, when we talk about search efficiency, what are some of the sports buzzwords that you're hearing people talk about when it's search efficiency in sports? What, what have you heard coaches and front office executives describe this as? It's really filtering through the visual chaos and the chaos within sports is moving, which kind of is an adjustment compared to the lab, right? The lab tends to be a static screen where you're searching for an object, but on the field, everybody is moving. And the other thing that, you know, we really wanted to just kind of to talk with you, Jeff, about is what we hear from a lot of coaches is finding or locating space, 
which isn't a way that we've typically described a, a search efficiency task or, you know, when, when I've done visual search in, in my lab, we're always looking for a specific target, right? With some preconceived knowledge of what we're looking for. But we've heard a lot of soccer coaches in particular talk about finding space, passing to space. And so how do we reconcile the target being not a target? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. In the 1960s, the psychologists were really interested in this. The data they found is completely consistent with some of the things you just said, which is, so they had people do this. The, the target, like you're saying, in the literature had been find a thing. And then what Ann Treisman and some other psychologists had people do in the 1960s was to look for not a thing. Look for the absence of a feature. In this case, like the absence of, a, of any player, right? Either, let's say, the red jerseys or the black jerseys. You don't want any of those. In the, and that's how you find space. So finding the absence of stuff is very inefficient. So because you're not you're looking you're looking for the absence of targets right so this is where the doctors of philosophy started earning their money right where they realized wait a second you're looking for what's not there so you have to check for everything that could be there and say absent right so is that how the brain does it now we don't totally know that in sports let me say because I think you might be right, Brandon, that the, and the coaches may be right, that a player can easily look for a big green patch and that's target absent, right? So you know there's no players there and that may be what people are looking for. And if they're not, we should be training them to look for a big green patch because if you're looking for where players aren't and you're performing the comp your brain's performing the computation that way, you have to do, you have to check for both. So it's twice as many comparison operations, which we think is what's taking a significant period of time during these tasks. So you do want people to look for big green patch because that is easy to find. Can I, can I dovetail off of that? Because I think this is really fascinating because you think of a quarterback making a read. We often say the quarterback's target is the receiver, but oftentimes the decision about whether to go to that receiver is based on whether the linebacker shifted into the, the space that, that the receiver's running or the linebacker. So the linebacker is, is present where I was planning to throw the ball then don't throw. If the linebacker's absent, not there, you know, so it's a read on a target, but not the target we often associate. So it's pretty interesting to think about in those cases is the target, the defender, and so the absence of defender in a space, so it's kind of layered as well. Right. You know, what did the, what is, where is the defender and what is the, wh what direction is the defender moving? And I'll make a decision about whether to throw or whether to move on to the next read. Okay, Scott, I, I was thinking about that this weekend, watching it, watching football actually, which is this, based on the Green and Anderson paper from 1956, no quarterback should ever throw the ball to the other team. Unless one of the, unless your players, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not confused. You're, you're, you're like, that is a non-target. I don't even recognize you as an object, damn it. And yet sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they'll throw it right to that person, right? And I think Scott's right that you have to kind of check where's my player, where's theirs. And kind of that metric distance determines whether your target, whether your player is the target. Right. You do need to process both 
it's the distance there, right? And, you know, football is a great example too. That ball is always being thrown to empty space. Like, because the, with the speed of the players, I mean, this is why I was an offensive lineman because I could not, I would, you're like, you just got to throw it out in the middle of nowhere where nobody is and just trust that they're going to run underneath it. This is madness. So like the amount of, um, of prediction with the ball that has to go into this is, is amazing. But in front of that, it, it, you're exactly right. I do not think defenders are task irrelevant objects for a quarterback. I think they're targets. And I think that's how some of the mistakes happen is that you're, you're really more interested in what the defender's doing in terms of whether your guy's going to be able to get the ball. They're, whether their hips are open or closed, the position of their feet, the direction of their movement, there's all these visual cues that momentarily, very quickly become a target, and then you move on to another target. Right, right. And, uh, it's really interesting, the serial, you talked about it earlier, the serial target, uh, the serial search is very much what some of these positions are doing. It is really interesting when you said that, because I was reading an article uh, from The Ringer this past weekend that was describing how, you know, Joe Burrow, he's like, oh, if the position, if the DB's positional hips are this way, like, even if I throw it in double coverage, I still know my guy can get it. And and as a lot of people have taken that quote and said, well, it's kind of, he can look back on that throw and say, yeah, of course, that's what I did. But you're, what you're saying here is, no, there are people that can process this and visually search like that. Yeah. We, and we, we do believe that, that, that most people do this serial shifting. One of the first things I did in graduate school was to try to get humans to split attention across multiple locations. And this is, I'm not the only one that had this as the quest of their graduate school education. I have at least four friends who spent time doing this sort of thing. And it looks like you can't. It looks like what happens is you shift attention rapidly between locations. Uh, So another task that you guys use at S2 Cognition is uh, multiple object tracking. And it looks like maybe people shift attention between those very rapidly. Although the jury's still out on that as well. But it looks like maybe that's how we do this that when you want to kind of monitor two possible receivers that you have to shift attention between them as opposed to really being able to track them at the same time. But again, that that's, this is just the old data from the nineties that this is based on. Is that, is that just applicable to visual search that we can't split our attention or is that just like this whole multitasking is just not a thing (laughs) (laughs) because I'm not very good at it. So if you want to make a statement that was not going to be falsified, it was that people are very bad at doing two things at once, <laughs> whether, that's, <laughs> whether that's too fast or too stimulate. And that, so the data that looks like you may be able to do this show that it, you're a little bit better at, at having them both visible at the same time than having them kind of come up in series that there's a slight advantage for being able to see them both at once, as opposed to really having a condition that mimics the serial processing. But is it going to be sport relevant? I'm not so sure. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I think we, it's, it's a perfectly good model for athletics to have attention be a serial spotlight of attention that is either locked to where your eyes are or can go to like one additional location. You know, it's probably about the speed of these things. 
So before we leave this topic, I just want to clarify, circle back and clarify. Our search efficiency task actually measures finding a target. Do you think that there's any correlation between that and being able to find space? Or do we need to sort of force these coaches to define space for their athletes, which is a patch of green grass or something specific? To my knowledge, if you measure an individual's search slopes across a variety of different targets, like you say, like some that are easier to find and some that are harder for that person, that the that there is a there's a really strong correlation between all of those search efficiencies. So that it looks like it might not make a huge difference whether you're looking for a T or you're looking for a 57 Chevy Bel Air hardtop, right? That those 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 individual differences are going to be absorbed in some learning time and then that y-intercept effect thing that I talked about a little bit, but that the search efficiency is going to be fairly robust. Uh, again, somewhat like the what we talked about with aging and these other things. And and this would be consistent with what we were just talking about, which is it's probably whatever this shift of attention comparison operation thing is that's taking quite a bit of time. Not so much the the memory that you have to compare to. So whether it's empty space or the letter T, it's just a different target that you have to compare, but it's the shifting and comparison that takes the time. Hey, can I ask a question off, off of that, Brandon? I think that's interesting because sometimes you're looking to find open space. You know, you're going to change your route or in soccer, you're going to, you're going to get wedge in between defenders to open space, but other times open space hasn't evolved yet, hasn't opened up. And so there's an anticipation of when it will open up. Are we switching between search efficiency and then tracking to anticipate where targets are converging or diverging in terms of their movement and their motion? Wonder if you had any thoughts on that. So you turn and you anticipate where space is versus what's currently open right now, target. And this is really the quarterback problem, right? Because you have to kind of predict what's going to happen in a, in a few seconds. Or the point guard, uh, even in, in, bas- in basketball. Yeah. Basketball, soccer, anticipating where to – I mean, you see some of these, Yeah, you know it, – It's amazing. Passing the ball to some a space, and you're like, where in the world is going? And then all of a sudden, it just opens up like the heavens and there's, there's, right, there's right. The, the, you know, the teammate receiving right. the ball. Yeah. So there's a couple ways that that could happen, right? People could be imagining what's going to unfold and they could be like playing the simulation forward in their head. You know, next week, I'm going to be lecturing on that in cognitive psychology. If you guys want to come, that seems to take a long time to do those, those sort of mental simulations of what's going to happen when this happens seems to be slow, inefficient, and humans suck at it. <laughs> well, it, look, it looks like if you want to, you know, if you want to imagine what this pass, this 20 yard pass is going to do, that if you want to imagine what a 40 yard pass is going to do, it takes twice as long. So you would, as a quarterback, you like, oh, well, how long is this, this is going to take a while for me to imagine this result? You don't have time to do that, right? Um, my friend Marvin Chun is is now the dean at Yale. But the really cool thing he, he did when he was still a scientist was to discover that the human visual system learns patterns. Like, and he other people had done this too, but he did it in visual search. And what he showed was that as you learn certain arrays of distractors, it helps you find targets 
and you may not even be aware that you're learning these configurations of distractors. So what he would do is he would have some, some arrays of distractors pop back up in the experiment. And what would happen is he'd measure your reaction time and you'd be faster on those trials than on the other ones where it was a random array. But you could not tell that any of the arrays had repeated. And if we showed you two, one that you'd seen 20 times and one that you'd only seen once, you can't tell the difference. But you are much, much faster. And then what Marvin did was to have these distractors move now, right? So now they move like like defenders kind of move on the field, right? And what he showed was that people could pick out where the target was going to be based on the, uh, the configuration of movement of the distractors. So I don't think Marvin meant to be studying uh, sports cognition, but he was because he was showing that people can learn these like really complicated patterns of movements of kind of the field of of distractors and defenders and and allow you to predict where the target tends to appear given this configuration. The really cool thing is that it looks like it's all automatic. You learn this stuff just with enough exposures. So you just have to kind of learn these patterns. That's pretty interesting because you, you know, when you're passing a ball, you, you usually have some template of the play where you're when and where your teammate is going to move or what route they're making or when right. they're going to you know break towards the goal and so you're already operating with some some advantage some strategy some uh mental set that kind of has some anticipation built in and it's really interesting to hear you describe how you can then pick up on these defensive patterns, perhaps the defender's patterns and their motion and movement as distractor motion, and then become even more skilled at knowing when to deliver the, the pass or the shot. So this is getting, this is dovetailing really nicely into, you know, sort of the training aspect of this, right? Or how do we get better at this? Because this is, I mean, this is really the, the, the crux of our business is not just measuring it, but how do we improve this? uh in in young especially in younger athletes and you know we're, we're thrilled to to sort of talk about some of the things that we've done in soccer and in football but we'd love to hear jeff any just initial thoughts on you know is there a way to improve to become more efficient yeah i mean the literature on this the oldest study i know of was 1901. <laughs> i was just like showing off that the all of the the junk they made me learn to get a PhD. I'm just kidding. It was good stuff. So this is an incredibly cool study. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pick on the previous century because they did a really cool thing. And this was Thorndike 1901. What he, he had people do was to become experts at looking for the letter E on a page. So he would show them, they would, the, the stimulus was this. It was like, okay, how many E's? <laughs> and they just like show them a letter, show them a page, and they had to count all the E's as fast as they could. And then they stopped the stopwatch and they would say, there's 24 E's in, the, in that page. And they did this for weeks. They, they looked at, they looked at pay, like hours for weeks and they got really good at looking for E's. They, and they calculated like the efficiency of how many letters they must have been processing to have found the E's on those pages and, it, you know, thousands of letters per second. So they're just flying through these letters. And they showed that the search efficiency has gotten 
shallower over time. Like, so they did get you better. You baby became, you became an E expert. Here's the thing. He thought, well, let's see how, let's see how general that learning was. Now we're going to have you look for a C. And the, the, the genius of this is that the C is an E without this thing. Like it's right. just like that. Yeah. There's that one, just one little line segment different. So what he predicted was that you would see some what's known as savings. That is when I, when I learned to look for E's, it wasn't exactly the same as, as a C, but it was close enough that, that my brain has learned to look for that curvy shape a lot better. And so now I can look for those curvy shapes. I'll, I'll be much more efficient than if I was looking for the letter L, for example. The crazy thing is no. It was as if they were looking for a totally different letter. <laughs> the C looked no different than the L or the F right. or any of the other letters that were in totally different from the E. And so Thorndike proposed the law of identical elements, which is when you learn, the, the learning will only transfer to another task that has exactly the same stimuli. So we've backed off a little bit on this generalization gradient is what modern scientists call this, which is how, how good is the learning going to be for doing other things? And if you have a very broad generalization gradient, then like learning to talk will help you in many different careers. <laughs> it's not going to just be good right. for one talky career, right? But it has, it has a broad generalization gradient. The crazy thing about, about a lot of the cognitive training is that it seems to be entirely specific for that specific task. So if I try to have, if I try to train you on video games with the idea that it's going to improve your ability to pick out the spin on a curveball, I am unlikely to do it unless the video game involves picking out spin on a curveball <laughs> and, and it's exactly like being in real life or has the, has the essential characteristics that real life has. So I was just going to say preaching to the choir. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we, we, there's, so, there's been so many efforts after the decade of the brain, the brain training, whack-a-mole boards and iPad games and iPhone, you know, promising to make you a better hitter or a better middle linebacker, or a better volleyball player. And it's just, it is so hard to achieve that, uh, that transfer. I mean, you've got to have some overlap of the visual elements or the motor, ideally both and progress to, you know, we talk about systematic approximation all the time. You got to progress and increasingly the elements uh, and the demands of, of the training have to really start to overlap with the demands of the plane. You guys are dead on. I mean, it, as far as we can tell, that's how learning happens. <laughs> it doesn't happen any other way. And, and like kind of the rest of it's just us asserting that this is going to help you in other ways. Now, there is one thing we've done in our laboratory, which is to do some brain stimulation work. And that's the only stuff we've ever seen that doesn't look like this, where it looks like you may be juicing the brain to be a general learner or something. But maybe I could come back and talk about that another day. But um, everything else, you get better at that task. And you need to practice the aspects of that task that you're struggling with to get better at, at it in that context. So you're exactly yeah. right. So that's, that's exactly, you know, the way we've approached some of this, you know, so for a quarterback working on search efficiency, what we've done is like, you know, we've had them divert their attention to one side of the field and perhaps report what a coach is holding up and then have to quickly in turn and locate a receiver. 
Well, the receiver to start with is just one-on-one with a defensive back and one's wearing a red jersey and one's wearing a white jersey. And then over time, we manipulate either the color of the jersey to where ultimately they're wearing the same color jersey or increase the number of folks they're having to filter through. Now, you know, while you may see some uh, improved effects, you know, I mean, I guess it's open to debate whether we've made you a a better searcher or you're implicitly picking up on things like the way your wide receiver moves, right? Just the way he moves his body, you just become more efficient at recognizing uh, your teammates. Same thing with on the soccer field. I think Scott's got some experience working with, uh, with some college soccer programs doing a very similar sort of approach. But that's the only way we've seen it sort of move the needle versus sort of trying to do these these tasks that are uh, even in small sided games. I think you know these small drill type things are still it, it's hard to move the needle in some of them. The stimulus becomes different when you add five more people. It's it right. seems mm-hmm. it's it's both obvious and seems like it can't be true. <laughs> you know, it's got both of those aspects to it. But it, I mean the dynamics of the flow field, just to use like the vision science term, that is like the number of moving elements is going to change as you add more players. And to just measuring the distance and speed between them is not necessarily linear, right? If they're not moving in the same directions and stuff. So the math you need to model the the movements of multiple players like that is very complicated. And the computer science and video games taught us how amazing our visual systems are at, at computing these things. Um, but, <laughs> right. but, and, but we shouldn't miss out on how much more complicated it is for the computer to add five more players too, because you know, it now has to calculate these things too, to like, is, are the shadows right and everything. And yet our visual systems just you know, scale that up, seeming to do the same task but you know you got to recognize there may be some features you're not going to get in that in that seven person drill from when you don't have all 11 on the field hey jeff are there tricks adaptive strategies we talk a lot about individual differences and so you've got brains that just are are slower at searching and brains that are really fast had an interesting conversation with jim zorn uh, who was a quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks and coach in the NFL. And he said something interesting. He, he would train quarterbacks when they would turn and make a read. If it felt visually cluttered, that was enough to make the decision to move on to the next read. But if it wasn't cluttered, so the absence kind of then make the throw, make the, make the play. But if it felt cluttered, his idea was that, hey, there's probably defenders creating this visual cluttered kind of a feel. Are there little tricks like that that come to mind that uh, are helpful for athletes who may be a, less efficient at, at searching quickly? The, the biggest, the, the superpower that our brain has is long-term memory. So, I, and you guys kind of have referred to this a little bit about how the how players can learn the motion of their teammates and how their teammates run and that you that allows you to kind of you don't you can know it's them without seeing their face right and and that stuff that stuff looks like it's kind of the superpower for our brains in our own laboratory work it looks like people's long-term memories for targets kind of start taking over after about five trials or so 
Um, so, you know, after, after you've run five plays with those players, your, your long-term memories of how they move and what they're doing are really going to be the targets for you. So, you know, one thing is, of course, learn your teammates. And this is why the people who've practiced a lot, this is why practice makes perfect. And yeah, practice beats talent when talent doesn't show up. And all those other sayings are basically (laughs) about how important it is to chew on this stuff. What you're describing there is also known as chunking in cognitive psychology, which is instead of thinking of the unit as the individual player, maybe it's this chunk or this configuration of players over on the field. And that is genius to, to say, oh, too chunky, I'm on to the next one. I mean, because what you've done there is essentially made the target more complex, which human memory representations have no problem doing. And you've decided when I see this shift onto the next one. So those are very good strategies. Hey, we need to shout out to Jim Zorn if he's listening. Yeah. Just called, yeah. He was yeah. just called a genius by a genius. <laughs> and so uh, that's pretty impressive. So Jeff, uh, Jeff, just really quickly, um, and I know this is maybe a little off topic or tangential, but uh, back in my younger days, I was a memory scientist. Um, you, you, you use the word long-term memory there. And some of the things we're kind of talking about, and, and of course, I, I tend to box things, probably not a great thing when you talk about long-term memory. Some of these things feel more implicit than they do like this, try, I'm trying to learn how my teammate moves. And that's what I've always associated with, like putting things in the long-term memory. And I, and I think it's, it's really interesting because we do have an implicit learning task, an instinctive learning task where people pick up, you know, on these kind of things where just, and this is probably more for my own edification, but where does that kind of intersect with those things? I mean, is that traditional long-term memory that sort of goes through the hippocampus and is stored cortically and those kind of things? Or is this something that is just some people have the ability, this innate ability to to do this and, and some don't? This is a very interesting question, Brandon. You know, when we've been measuring these things, we've just been having people do visual search t- trials over and over again and watch them get faster. So we're kind of going straight to the field and saying like, well, how much faster can you get better at the field? And then what we did was to measure different types of brain activity and say, well, what type of brain activity tracked that learning curve, right? So if we're seeing you get faster and faster at learning this stuff, what did it, (laughs) right? Yeah, right. And in in our hands, when we record the electrical activity of your head, it, it is the activity that people believe to be due to what's happening in long-term memory that is tr- tracking the learning curve. Now, and, and you might ask, wait a second, Jeff, you can't just say long-term memory because there's a whole bunch of types, right? And yes, you're right, Brandon. This is, it looks more like familiarity. So one type of long-term memory is uh, you experience when someone walks up to you and starts talking to you and you think, oh my God, I know who this person is and I have no idea what their name is. You just experience familiarity without recall, which is you knew you'd known the stimulus, but you could not recall the name or what the label is of that stimulus. And it looks like the type of learning that we're studying in the laboratory when people are doing visual search is of this familiarity type. That is, it doesn't matter if you label it as an interception array or a good pass array. It looks like your visual system learns those things or your brain, your long-term memory stores it, and it can use it later. 
whether you try to or not. I mean, it totally makes sense to me, right? Because familiarity is a quicker than recognition or recall, right? And it's also more susceptible to error, which I, I think on the football field or on the soccer pitch, you can, <laughs> that's how errors happen, right? Is that it's just these quick, quick judgments based on what feels maybe or, or seems familiar, right? It is really fast in the brain too. So let me just real quick, the brain will tell you how many times it's seen that stimulus within 150 milliseconds after it's shown. So your brain can tell you, I've seen this thing nine times and we can see it that fast. So you're exactly right. You're, you are, your brain recognizes the match between what's happening out in the world and how many times it saw that thing real, real fast. <laughs> so that's all I wanted to say. So go ahead, Scott. Yeah. No, I was just going to comment. This is really cool because it, it kind of gives the substance or the mechanism underlying what you hear in sports that, hey, this quarterback and receiver, you know, they just need more time to gel together, to get in sync, to learn each other. And there's something to be said about, you know, you've got a guy like Patrick Mahomes who throws from all these different arm angles at any point in time, at any place on the field, running in any direction. There's a lot more to implicitly learn and figure out to, to, to become familiar with, with where the ball is going to come from, where to search and anticipate but it, it, this is really interesting because you hear about that you know new teammates having to get in sync together and it takes time for the, their brains to kind of get to know and read those cues and, and pick up and you know, make those those kind of anticipatory decisions well what's fascinating is you know I, my brain immediately went to this preseason we're not going to play our starters we're going to keep them out and so now you see these weeks and weeks and weeks of backups get me- and they mesh well and they there's familiarity with the backups cuz they're like I've been throwing to you for 4 or 5 years now but then you get to week 1 and it's just this like w- discombobulation of things so are you saying there is there is a potential? I know you're a scientist, so you're going to stay away from generalizations. <laughs> but there is potential for that to be more of a positive to play in preseason as opposed to the negatives, which are long-term injuries? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's why you're holding everybody out. And near the end of the season, right, well, when – when the Titans are getting ready to make the playoffs, they're going to sit some people. <laughs> I'm just going to say that optimistically. And <laughs> now, is that good, right? And I have been watching NFL playoffs with an eye on the sitting probably hurts you a, a lot in the last couple of years because mm. it, it should. It should actually hurt you to take that time off practice. Now, here's what everybody hopes, which is there's something known as asymptotic performance in humans, which is you're so freaking good at that task that you're just at the ceiling. <laughs> and like, and even getting a little worse is not measurable for you, right? Now, unfortunately, that may be, there may be like three people on your team who, for whom that's true, right? That they are like at peak human performance for throwing and catching the ball. But other folks may show some dips, but it's just, you know, is the knee feeling good going to be better than your visual system being tuned right. up to detect targets? The, the relative 
costs and benefits of those two things is hard to calculate. And you see it across multiple sports, right? You see the team in the in the NBA playoffs that gets to sit because they have the early seed and they win in four games, but then the next they play all seven and then they roll right in. You're like, they're not skip. They're going to be tired, but they they seem not to skip a beat. It's this. It, it's exactly kind of what you're talking about with the familiarity effect. Yeah, we all think that we're gonna that rest is gonna help us the most. <laughs> That's it's, it's a it's, fundamental human uh, flaw in our logic. <laughs> Before we get to the last segment, which is the three funny and random questions, I, I want to ask: uh, Is there a recent study? I know you had mentioned something about beefing up the brain and getting some responses. What's something in your lab right now that might have relevance to sport that, that you'd like to give more detail on? Well, so I think I mentioned this briefly. We've been trying some more of these exotic brain stimulation methods to try to improve how people's brains are are running without all of the dang practice and work. So this is trying to go straight for the, I want to rest a lot, but Total also, hack. yes, we just want to hack the system. And it does look like you can, it, it looks like there is a variety of electrical stimulation, which makes the brain prone to learn. I think is probably the way that this is our current understanding of it. You run some current through it that makes it really kind of plastic and malleable. That way, when you hit it with a task, it learns that task really fast. That's kind of what we think's going on. Although the jury's still kind of out, but we did, we have found that it, in, it speeds how rapidly you can kind of learn a simple video game. And what we haven't done was to see whether, you know, you do this thing and then you put people in something you care about in athletics or, you know, some other non-video game <laughs> task, see whether it also improves learning. So we, we haven't actually done the generalization stuff that we should to see whether we are kind of making your brain a, a better learner. Jeff, this is interesting. You'll find this interesting. So if, when we, Brandon and I first got into this, one of the hot topics was, can you use transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS over the motor cortex to speed up your motor system so your bat velocity, your bat speed was faster. Right. And it was really interesting because there wasn't a whole lot of research. I mean, yeah, you can, you can speed up motor processes by stimulating your motor cortex. But what the thinking that seemed to be missing was, okay, what are the consequences here? Yeah. So now you've got this athlete who for years has been swinging at 95 miles an hour now is, you know, boosted up. Do they know how to drive the Ferrari? And what are the trade-offs of driving a Ferrari? It's going to be harder to stop the Ferrari or, you know, you might be more impulsive in your reactions or, you know, and then that, that doesn't even get it kind of you know, how carefully are we really, are we stimulating other neighboring structures in the frontal lobes that are critically involved in control and flexibility? And, but it was really interesting. It kind of, it kind of peaked and then it diminished a little bit, you know, cause they, you know, they do it and they get faster, but then they weren't doing it consistently. So now your brain's having to figure out, okay, what, what car am I driving today? You know, <laughs> and, and you gotta go in, in the, in the clubhouse in between innings and get a, get a read. Yeah, read up. <laughs> only last 15, 20 minutes. So after the third inning, you're running at, you know, running in, and you know, and, and then what happens if you're swinging faster, but then you have to initiate the, sw the swing later, right. To compensate for. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. yeah. So it just wasn't that through, but it's really interesting to think about. We can uh, avoid the, the drugs and just stimulate the brain in a similar way. And 
you guys are right though that the the context of what you're learning and and how you're learning it and the the other interesting thing is that unless you are unless you know your physics pretty well and you know which which terminal on your battery is the anode and which is the cathode that <laughs> if, if you hook it up the other way you're dumber instead of smarter so <laughs> we can that's what i've been doing that's what i've been doing wrong yeah they start tripping over themselves spilling their coffee because you're stimulating the cerebellum yes yeah, was that Steve Martin from Pink Panther hooking up the wrong battery and then zipping all the way back? Oh, shout out Steve! Shout out Steve! That's Ask awesome. Steve Martin. <laughs> yeah, you think you think he's listening to this podcast? Yeah. Uh, let's get into the uh, last realm of questions, um, Doctor Jeff. What is your favorite invention of all time? It could be any invention that's ever existed. What's your favorite? Oh, jeez, people. <laughs> uh, I go with the tile saw. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, Explain <laughs> some more, please. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I love doing a bathroom, and, and there's nothing better than a really, really tight tile job on that bathroom. <laughs> I, I just been thinking about home remodeling. Now, if uh, the best invention, I mean, clearly it's the wheel, right? I mean, the wheel <laughs> crushed everything else. Without it, we don't. We have like very few sports. You know, yeah, it's got to be the wheel. Okay, I was about to say the Vegas odds on your ta- on your tile saw were like plus ten trillion. So <laughs> yes. the wheel was much lower. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That was my. I would tried to give the lowest probability answer. So okay. are you? Are you? Are you a wheels guy or a doors guy, Jeff? Were you involved in that whole thing? No, no. I, what are I, there more of in the world, wheels or doors? Oh, oh, wheels for sure. I mean, wait. Does a ball bearing? Do you know what I mean? Oh, uh, dude, I get it. Yeah, because there's tiny wheels in your wheel. Anyway, yes, I, I'm sure this is spiral. This, yeah. <laughs> this has spiraled. It's a fractal <laughs> image of wheels getting uh, Second question is all of the coaches that watch this have just turned it off. <laughs> uh, this is how they know I'm a nerd. This is just my, my right here. <laughs> like we needed to remind them. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Minute 56. If anyone's still listening, I need to shake their hand. What sport will be invented next? Oh, oof. I would say some sort of river smash ball while you're, you know, yeah. You're going down the river and you're playing something on a river. Are you floating yeah. on an object? Yes. Then there has to be beer involved, clearly. Yeah, there probably is. There probably is. <laughs> Definitely in Tennessee. Definitely in Tennessee. So. Uh, something with white water rafting wrestling. Is that? Yes. Right. I think you should be throwing things across the water at each other. It should be projectiles <laughs> of some sort. Uh, and the last question is unlike the others describe the funniest thing you've seen at a Walmart. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, this wasn't something I saw. Yeah, this is an easy one. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was like, which of these memories should I share? So, yeah. uh, 
Now this is this is we don't have the E on our podcast, so this can't be explicit. <laughs> this is totally G-rated and everything. Don't worry. So I'm in I'm in line and I'm I'm unloading my cart, right? And I hear someone behind me say, "I don't think you know how much I like fried chicken." <laughs> and, and I was just like, "Damn!" <laughs> so yeah, that was. That was the best day ever for me at a Walmart was like imagining like what that person knew about the, the fried chicken eating habits and how they could be so far off. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly don't know me well enough. <laughs> yeah, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> I have like an injection ready to go of fried chicken yeah. <laughs> every moment. So... <laughs> My uh, speaking of that, my 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 wife at the beginning of the pandemic, there was someone who was standing kind of close to her, and uh, she coughed extremely loud, and looked over. My wife kind of because this is like when coughing was still like, hey, that's <laughs> it's not. Still, it's still questionable. <laughs> yeah, Midtown, Midtown, now yeah, Kroger at Midtown Nashville, you're in trouble if you're coughing. Yeah. Man. They just tase you just right on the spot. So, so this woman coughs and, and my wife just turns to her because it's like this, whoa, all, all of a sudden, it's, and it, it, verbatim, she goes, I'm not sick. It's like, oh, okay. Well, then, are you sure? Because I'm getting a lot of sick messages here. Yeah. <laughs> Only at Walmart. Well, Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for joining the podcast. This was so fun. I learned a lot. I know the average listener. I mean, they, their hair is going to be on fire. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Can't wait to do it again someday, maybe. Oh, for sure. You're definitely coming back on. Oh, good. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, guys.